you have your worship folder there, uh, flip over to the next page. We're going to look at this passage from Romans 11 this morning. And uh, I've been uh, away uh, from preaching a few weeks, and I'm really glad to be back. And uh, I was gone on vacation for a couple weeks, and then um, almost on the spur of the moment. Uh, last week, went with Matt Clegg, our assistant who was just up here, down to Laguna Beach with, with uh, some teenagers for a uh, youth conference. And uh, I know some people say that when you spend time around young people, it makes you feel younger. Uh, that was not my experience. Uh, both Matt and I had many uh, moments of looking at each other, uh, wondering if we would make it back. And we are very glad to be back. Um, so we're back in Romans, Romans 11. We have this week and then next week. And then we'll be switching back to Genesis and looking at the last section of the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph. Um, and we've been doing that because uh, these two books, Genesis and Romans, really are a beautiful conversation partners that unfold for us the story of the Scriptures and particularly some of the most central and important themes as well as characters uh, that we need to, to be exposed to and understand how they teach us about God and uh, the gospel. And I want to remind you again that what is Romans all about? Romans is God's good news for the whole world, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. And the question that we are going to look at this morning and continue to unpack is what if that good news is met with unbelief? If this book is all about God's good news for the world, what if that good news is met with unbelief? That is the central question of Romans 9 through 11, specifically as it relates to the people of God, the Israelites the Old Testament people of God and the Jews of the first century during which time Jesus comes and the apostles begin their ministry and the church begins to, to grow and expand. And the real question is, how will the Jews, that is the ethnic people of God, respond to the good news about the Jewish Messiah, who's Jesus Christ? Now, Paul has already argued that uh, the refusal of some of his fellow Jews, despite all of their privileges that he told us about back in the beginning of chapter 9, does not mean that God's word or his promises has failed, and it does not mean that God is being unfair or he lacks commitment or lacks follow-through. In fact, back in chapter 10... Verse 21, Paul, Paul says this of God. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So here's the question for us to look at today about the problem of unbelief. Specifically as it relates to Paul's uh, Jewish friends. What hope is there for God's people? The descendants of Abraham who have enjoyed a special relationship with God throughout the biblical story. And we're going to, just so you know, we're going to get to a so what about that. Why should you care about this story? 
I want you to be thinking about that because towards the end, we're going to come around and try to answer that. But for now, what I want us to, to think about is what hope is there for God's people, specifically the Israelite, the Jews, to whom God has entered into a special relationship throughout the story of the Scriptures. And it's this question that Paul takes up in chapters 11, in chapter 11 specifically. Last week, verse 1 read, I asked then, has God rejected his people? And Paul says, by no means. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And then in verse 11, the, the verse that begins our passage this morning says, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And his answer is, by no means. And what we're going to see is that even in the face of disregard and unbelief, God works through unbelief to bring about something beautiful and unexpected. So let's read this passage. I'm going to read uh, verse 11 through 24. You're welcome to listen or follow along there in your worship folder. Uh, Let's listen as uh, we read God's word. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we've already seen in chapters 9 and 10 that nothing can disrupt or derail God's gracious plan to save sinners. That is a central theme in these chapters, that God is sovereign, that he is good, 
that he is gracious, and that he can change any human heart that he in his secret infinite wisdom chooses to change. In other words, there is no one, Jew or Gentile, beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the very same time, that grace must be received by faith. God does not believe for us, but by his Holy Spirit, God does a work in the hearts of sinners so that their eyes are opened, their ears are opened, and they believe the good news. And we've seen again and again that that is God's intention and desire for all people. And if that's true, we must ask, how then does God work through the unbelief of his chosen people? First, for the good of the world, and second, for the good of his people. The Jews, the Israelites, his chosen people throughout the story of the Bible. So we got two points this morning. One, there's an unexpected twist. I could have easily have labeled this one the beauty of God's plan. An unexpected twist, verses 11 to 16, and then verses 17 to 24, a sober warning. So we've got an unexpected twist and a sober warning. First, let's look at the unexpected twist here in verses 11 to 16. Let me try to set the stage for you, what the situation is, okay? Romans, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, he's not yet visited Rome. This letter was probably written around 57 AD. That's 20 to 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The church is continuing to grow uh, well beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. The church is making deep, lasting inroads into the Gentile world. And so what we have now in this situation is think of it like this. There are essentially four groups of people as part of the biblical story as the church grows and as the gospel is believed. You've got Jews and you have Gentiles. So non-believing Jews in Jesus and non-believing Gentiles in Jesus. And then you have Jewish Christians, and then you have Gentile Christians. And pretty much everywhere Paul goes, the mixture of those four groups are all in play. And so here we come in verses 11 to 16 as we talk about this unexpected twist and how is God going to work through the unbelief of his people. Paul describes three stages for his fellow Jews or for the Israelites of his day. And as we'll see, these are three stages that actually overlap with our current time and extend well beyond our time into the future. And we'll particularly look at that next week. But what I want you to see, there are three stages. The first stage, look here in, in verse 11. Paul says, uh, rather, through their trespass, 
Paul describes, first off here, Israel's trespass, which is essentially the rejection of the gospel. His fellow kinsmen, his fellow Jews, who have rejected the good news about Jesus. And as we saw, Paul fit into that category in the early chapters of Acts. And what I want you to see here in this one word, trespass, Paul is describing uh, real historical events of his own ministry. And here's how this, this works. This trespass, this first stage, describing the unbelief of, of, of Paul's fellow Jews, uh, is, is, describes a pattern of ministry in the book of Acts. And here's how that pattern unfolded. Whenever Paul would go to preach the gospel, he first went to a synagogue, that is, the local church, the physical body of God's people in a place was the synagogue. And he first went to the synagogue and preached the good news to them. However, many in the Jewish community rejected that gospel, though some did believe and followed Paul and trusted in Jesus. But as a result of this rejection, Paul, as well as the other apostles, would then turn to the Gentiles. And many came to believe through that rejection by the Jewish people. And then the church began to grow into this multi-ethnic community of both Jews and Gentiles. And we see at least four examples of that pattern in the book of Acts. And I just want to read you. This is from Acts chapter 13. When Paul and Barnabas are in uh, Pisidian Antioch, which is a a city in Galatia, which is more or less modern-day Turkey, listen to how Luke summarizes this experience. He says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that is, to the Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So here's what I want you to see in this first stage that Paul calls the trespass of his kinsmen, of his people. It was, in fact, the hostility of the Jews to the gospel that prevented Christianity from being merely a renewal movement within Judaism. It was, in fact, the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people that led Paul and the other apostles to take this good news to the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, God, through the unbelief of his people, shows us this unexpected twist that this gospel is not just 
for the Jews. It is for the whole world. That's the first stage. But then notice the second stage. In verses 11 and 14 again, verse 11, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Verse 14, Paul says here about his ministry. In his ministry, he goes to the Gentiles in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So here's where we are. This is the unfolding process of the gospel going forward as the church grows. That Paul says a primary aim of his ministry is to make his fellow Jews jealous. Now, what does Paul mean here by jealous? We usually think of that word jealous or envy as a bad thing. And for the most part, at least in our case, that's true. But the way it's being used here, that the kind of jealousy that Paul is talking about is a jealousy that arouses a longing and desire in someone for something that is in and of itself good and that God wants you to enjoy. Let me give you an example or an illustration of this that, that at least came to mind for me. Um, imagine you're a, a freshman in college and you're on a, a, a you know, a, a meal plan. And usually how that works is you, you have three meals a day in the dining hall and three months of that, no matter how good the food is at any university, by the time that semester's over, you, you've just, it's not good anymore. <laughs> and I, I imagine, maybe I imagine this in my own case, hopefully someday, as an incentive for our boys to come home like for spring break or something, is I imagine Meg calling them and saying to them, do you remember those pancakes that dad used to make? Which is the only thing I really make. Or do you remember all those desserts I make for you? And, and those meals that you love? There's a creating a jealousy there. <laughs> a longing, a desire for something in and of itself good and beautiful. That is to enjoy the gift of good food with your family. That's what Paul is attempting to do through his ministry to the Gentiles, to his fellow brothers and sisters who are Jews, to create in them a longing and a desire that perhaps they've never experienced, even though they understand themselves to be the people of God. So think of it like this, that this second stage of creating this jealousy Paul, through his ministry, is attempting to show his own people who have the promises and who have the covenants that all of their history really points to something far more beautiful and gracious and hopeful than they have yet discovered. And that is that there is a, a relationship that they have to God that is all of grace. There's nothing that they can do to earn it or to keep it or to maintain it, but that God has committed himself to them and he has sent his beloved son to make it right. 
In other words, to prove that all of his promises, all of those clues, if you will, of the Old Testament, find their truest meaning in Jesus. And here's the, 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 the amazing thing about this, that the Jews can only believe because of what Gentile belief re- reveals about God's promises, that it's all of grace. But then the Gentiles could only have heard because Israel largely rejected Jesus. Do you see this unexpected turn, this unexpected twist? So that's the second stage, that the Gentiles are... are make Israel jealous. But then the third stage here are the future riches and acceptance of Israel. Look in verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And then look down in verse 15. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And if you look here in verse 16, this is many commentators wrestle over verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What's being said here is that there is an organic connection between what God has said in the past and what he will do in the future. And it is an unbreakable connection. That's essentially what's being said there. And so when we look at the the third stage here, what Paul is telling us is that there is an unfolding of God's plan that does include both Jew and Gentile and specifically includes the unbelief of his people, his covenant people. And that, and we'll see this more next week, we don't, we're not privy to all the details of how is it that God will bring back the Jews and weave them back into his story of redemption. All we're told here is that there is hope for God's covenant people particularly ethnic Jews. And that is true even today. And what I want you to see here is that God uses Jews to reach the Gentiles, which is really Genesis 12 all the way up until the New Testament. What did God say to, to, to Abraham? Through your offspring, I will bless the nations. Now, in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, God is going to use the Gentiles to reach the Jews. Now, what, what do we make of this? What, what are a couple things to, to chew on? One, what I want you to see here, God's power to save is greater than the power of human sin and unbelief. God's power to save is greater than human unbelief. In other words... Through the Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus, what God is doing is he is showing us that he has a way of leading us and making us jealous, longing for, to desire that which is most good for us, 
in ways that perhaps we can't even see or imagine. And my question for you this morning, have you ever experienced the gospel making you jealous for Jesus? Have you ever experienced the beauty of God's love and grace in the gospel to a point that you find your heart desiring and longing for something that you could never get on your own, that you could never experience by your competence or your training or your effort, but simply because it's a sheer gift of grace. Have you ever been made jealous by the gospel? And second, here's a question for us. Are we, as a church, creating a community that is, in fact, the fulfillment of what God called Old Testament Israel to become? Does our faith and life make others jealous for God's good news? And I think it's worth also asking the question, does our faith in the biblical God, who is not just the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, because God, for him, that whole book is one. It is one story. Does our community and our common life together make people, particularly and even Jewish people, jealous for the good news of the gospel that came out of their history, their story? Now, why does Paul lay all this out, these three stages in this letter? Well, it's because he's talking to Gentiles in the church at Rome. Remember those four groups. You've got Jews, you've got Gentiles, you have believing Jews and, and believing Gentiles. There's plenty of, of uh, uh, evidence in the first century, particularly of Jews in Gentile cities being poorly mistreated. Uh, there is plenty of racism and anti-Semitism in the first century. Jews were often not thought well of in Gentile cities. And you can only imagine, what if you're a Jew in a Gentile city and you believe in Jesus and now you're a part of this Gentile community in a largely Gentile city trusting in Jesus? The occasion for mistreatment and for superiority complex and inferiority complex to thrive is um, quite high. So Paul is here writing to a sober warning in verses 70 to 24 to the Gentile believers in the church in Rome. He says, I am speaking to you Gentiles. And there is a problem that he is addressing, and it is the problem of pride. Look in verse 18. He says to these Gentiles, do not be arrogant. Look down in verse 20. He says, do not become proud, but instead of being proud, fear. And he uses a metaphor here, this very common biblical image of an olive tree. And here, here the olive tree, the natural olive tree, is a metaphor for the Jews, the Old Testament people of God, as he, Paul knows them in his current moment in time. 
And then there is a wild olive shoot. And the wild olive shoot is a metaphor for the Gentiles. Notice what he says. He says, if some of the branches were broken off, that is, the unbelief of the Jewish people, branches are broken off, and you, although you are a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others so that you now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. In other words, think of the nourishing root as all of those spiritual privileges, the promises, the covenants, the worship of the Old Testament are now nourishing these wild offshoots that are now being grafted in. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And he anticipates an objection. He says, to these Gentiles, you, you might say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul says, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. And then he says, and you stand because of faith. In other words, what Paul is saying is, do not for a moment think, as a Gentile Christian, that you somehow deserve to be a part of God's community more than an unbelieving Jew. Because the only reason you are grafted back in is because of faith, because of sheer grace. And that's it. So Paul here issues a sober warning. And in its place, he says to fear. How are you supposed to fear? Notice what he says here. He says, note the kindness and the severity of God. Verse 22. Severity towards those who have fallen and God's kindness towards you provided you continue in his kindness. What does that mean, to continue in God's kindness? It does not mean that you can perhaps lose your salvation. What Paul is saying here is that the chief mark of a child of God is one who continues in faith. In other words, what Paul is saying here is faith is not presumption. Paul is saying, yes, you have been grafted in, and faith is how you've been grafted in, but do not for a moment think you can presume upon God. But then notice what he also says. If you were cut off, this is verse 24, what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? In verse 23, he says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. In other words, there is still hope for the Jews, for the ethnic people of God. There is no room for despair. Now, let me try to land this for you. Why does this story of the unbelief of Israel matter for you? Why should you care about these chapters, 9, 10, and 11? Well, here is why. Because chapters 1 through 8 describe the good news of the gospel, what God has done in Jesus 
And who has he done that great work for? He has done it for people of unbelief. The reason that you should care about the story of Israel is because it is the story of Jesus, the faithful remnant, the one who was chosen by grace, the one who has lived the life that you should have lived and died the death you deserve to die. You see, the story of Jesus is the culmination of a pretty dark story of again and again God pursuing his people only to have them reject him again and again. But through all of that, God remaining faithful and committed to his promise to the point where there's only one left who believes him, who follows him, and it's the Lord Jesus. And God, in his infinite wisdom and justice and mercy, cuts off that one remnant, that one faithful son of God, so that no matter whether you be Jew or Gentile, through faith in him, we might be grafted back in and benefit and receive the nourishment of God's saving grace. That's why this story is so important for us because the gospel tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus. And I wonder how many of you here today, whether it's because you're parenting or whether it's your marriage or your friendship or your work, whatever, you're wondering, will God actually be faithful to me? Because I know I am not faithful to him. These chapters tell you God will be faithful to you. And the question for you is, will you trust him? Will you trust him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for these passages. And the, the beautiful, unexpected way that you have worked in real space and time through unbelief to bring the good news to the nations and through the nations to even preach the good news back again to your people. And Father, we ask that as we read these chapters and reflect on what they teach, please help us not to become uh, presumptuous or to despair but rather help us to fear you. Help us to see that in Jesus, you will never leave us or forsake us. And that you are not yet done bringing people to faith in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile alike. And we ask that you would make us wise and courageous and humble as we participate in that great work through faith in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen.